Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading. Online at veanea.org. Today, a visit with former Governor L. Douglas Wilder. Welcome to Virginia Conversations. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us. We will get to our featured guest in just a moment, but first, a brief update on this year's session of the General Assembly. Lawmakers wrap up the regular session tomorrow. Joining us now by phone from Richmond is Associated Press reporter Bob Lewis. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, May Lily. How are you? I'm doing great this morning. I know the news this week that has shocked Roanokers is the death of beloved longtime Delegate Chip Woodrum, who served from 1980 to 2003. I remember Delegate Woodrum. He truly did have that quick wit that everyone spoke of anecdotally, uh, and he never took himself seriously. Right. Chip's death was uh, a blow to the heart. Um, uh, Chip left the General Assembly 10 years ago. Um, and I uh, enjoyed covering him then. I was privileged to um, uh, watch debate on the floor with uh, practitioners like Chip, uh, a man of genuine intellect, a man of incredible wit, a man uh, with a, uh, an ability to analyze the situation and know instinctively uh, uh, how to respond to it, uh, and, and a, a man who was just uh, uh, a good friend, and uh, his unexpected death uh, this week was uh, uh, quite a chill for, for those of us who, who knew Chip and had become friends with him uh, over the years. Uh, he's he's going to be missed. Uh, the character uh, the character that Chip embodied is uh, rare indeed these days in the General Assembly. It did feel that with his passing went an era. Yeah, it did. Um, a time when um, there was um, a more uh, more informed debate on that floor. Uh, Chip was not a bumper sticker slogan uh, delegate. Chip uh, had a vast uh, repository of knowledge of literature, law, uh, dirty jokes, you name it. But Chip uh, Chip was a a guy who who never who was never boring. Chip would always. Uh, uh, add something to the conversation, to the debate, uh, to what was going on on the floor and committee, you name it. Uh, and uh, we we missed that. We, uh, we wish we had more people like Chip back in the General Assembly. Well, let's talk about this week's General Assembly. I know that transportation leads the day. Let's talk about the compromise here. Well, uh, we expect a vote in a few hours. Uh, up or down vote on this compromise package that, if it passes, would um, represent the first major reform of the way Virginia funds its roads in a generation, in 27 years. Uh, so it's, a, it's an important vote, and we do not know how it's going to turn out. Um, the big problem for this, uh, for this package is... A lot of Republicans on the right don't like it. They call it a major tax increase, and that's true from uh, delegates and senators all the way to uh, Grover Norquist uh, and to Ken Cuccinelli. Cuccinelli came out against it yesterday, creating the odd spectacle of a Republican presumptive nominee for governor being uh, at odds with his own party's sitting governor while 
uh, the Democratic nominee, Terry McAuliffe, has embraced the uh, transportation compromise, and that puts him in league with uh, Bob McDonald. Weird times. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> package... The package would uh, do away with the 17.5 cent gas tax that was imposed in 1986 to replace it with a 3.5 percent um, uh, gasoline tax at the wholesale level that's tied to price, not volume. Volume has been a problem. Volume-based uh, taxing has been a problem because uh, people are using less gasoline. Fuel, uh, the fuel efficiency standards in cars, uh, the the uh, uh, tendency to drive less because of the price of gas uh, has made it a, a revenue source that's declined over time, and that's got to stop, because at the same time, revenue's declining, costs of building and repairing roads are soaring. So uh, we find ourselves behind the eight ball there. Uh, sales taxes will go up um, on uh, all retail goods uh, from 5% to 5.3%. Uh, diesel taxes go up to... Uh, uh, would be about 6% uh, per gallon. Um, the uh, uh, titling tax will increase the tax you pay. Essentially, a sales tax when you buy a car goes up from 3% to 4.3%. And a $100 uh, fee on hybrid cars. Uh, but uh, for folks in the south side, if you're listening down there, hey, this uh, this bill does away with tolling on I-95, so that would never happen if this uh, bill becomes law. Bob Lewis, Associated Press reporter, a pleasure talking with you this morning. And we'll let you get back to your coverage of the uh, General Assembly. Long day. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Doug Wilder was born and raised in Richmond, a grandson of slaves. One of his first stints in public service was serving in the Korean War, where he earned the Bronze Star. In 1969, Wilder was elected to the state legislature. After five terms in the Senate, he was elected lieutenant governor, and then in 1990 became the first African-American elected to governor in the U.S. For several months in late 1991, Wilder had his eye on the White House. Wilder made history again in 2004 locally in Richmond, becoming the first African-American mayor elected by popular vote by the citizens. Here's a portion of a documentary on Doug Wilder called Wilder and American First. It was produced as part of the Classroom Clips media series for educators and students. In this segment, you'll hear several voices, Ray Garland, Gerald Foster, and Larry Sabato, to name a few. It also includes a clip from Doug Wilder's gubernatorial inauguration in 1990. The thing that distinguished him from most black politicians is that he did not define himself purely as a black politician. And it wasn't about, well, you're black, you can't. Uh, it's you're, you're black, but so what? He walks into a room and he's just all eyes are on him and he becomes larger than life. He has this very engaging side that just warmed audiences and warmed people who wanted him to do well, really. At the same time, he can be extremely contentious, uh, even with his friends. Sometimes it feels like it's better to be his enemy than to be his friend. So don't tell me that you're going to stand up on your moral horse now and say what you're going to do. He had to be mean and tough. And he had to knife people right and left, whatever it took to win. And that's why he made history. 
That's why he was the first elected black governor. And he'll always have that position in history. He's going to be there in the history books after everybody else in Virginia in the 20th century is forgotten. As we salute the idea of freedom today, let us pledge to extend that same freedom to others tomorrow. And let us likewise be thankful that while our country gave birth to a freedom long denied and delayed for all who love freedom, the belief in these dreams held by those forebears was passed from generation to generation and spawned the seeds that propagated the will and the desire to achieve. We are on hallowed ground here today. The words we issue must be words of wisdom. The laws we pass must be laws of mercy and of justice. And the faith we possess must be true to the Almighty. An excerpt from a documentary on Doug Wilder produced as part of the Classroom Clips media series for educators and students. You can watch the entire documentary at their website. The program is distributed by American Public Television. Governor Wilder is currently a distinguished professor at Virginia Commonwealth University's L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs. And he is our guest for the next hour on Virginia Conversations. Welcome. Always good to be with you, May Lilly, and congratulations on your radio venture to the extent that you've carried it, and you've always done a great job, not only with conversations, but commentaries and letting people know just what goes on. Thank you so much. When I was in the press corps during your governorship, uh, one of the things that was true of you and only a handful of other governors is that uh, no question was off limits. So we would, he would field any question and always remark or respond or comment with the exact same tone. So we're going to ask our listeners to call in and uh, just let the governor have your softballs or hardballs or whatever it might be. You don't have to encourage them. They will. <laughs> and by the way, just so everyone knows, we still refer to former governors as governor, and that's just sort of the parlance. I would like to start with something that fascinates me about your your early life, and that is you really wanted to be a chemist. Yeah. That's what you studied. And yet here along came Brown versus Board of Education and changed your life. Precisely. And I've said that on some occasions that but for Brown, I would not have had the belief. I had been in Korea, as you pointed out, and I really felt that my fighting a war in Korea to protect the rights of Koreans and to give them rights when we didn't have rights as Americans, as African Americans, was so oxymoronic that why am I here? And I had pretty much lost faith in the system of government in America. And Brown versus Board of Education to me, and I had it came out in 1954. I came back from Korea in December of 19, I'm sorry, September of 1953. But I got discharged in December of 53, and I said, "Wow, you mean there is there is a chance that it can it, it can work?" And when nine white men said, "You know, we were wrong in Pleasant versus Ferguson. We were wrong in 1896." Now, this is 1954. I said, wow. But I still went on and worked as a chemist for a couple of years because I didn't, couldn't go to law school in Virginia. 
And even though I, if if I could have gone, I might not have been accepted because my grades were not good. My background was uh, more scientific. And I applied to Howard University two years after that, and they accepted me, and uh, that started my involvement into law. Would you share the story about Herb Reed, your law school professor? <laughs> Herb Reed was a dear man who, as a Harvard graduate, <clears throat> could very easily have gone into one of the big law firms on Wall Street and made money, but he chose to come back to Howard and teach. Uh, he was a native of North Carolina, a brilliant man. And I was doing pretty well, I thought, in his classes. And uh, we uh, got along well. And I was always, I was working at Bowling Air Force Officers Club waiting tables. I had my GI Bill of rights. I had bought a car when I got out of the Army. And I was living a life. I was having a ball just going out to the clubs. And D.C. was just fantastic. This kid who had been in Richmond all his life, all of a sudden gets up there, and so I'm partying, getting off late, getting off about 10 o'clock at night, going down to the clubs until 11 or so, and he would call on me for a case to present in class, and I wouldn't be ready. And he said to me, he said, uh, well, I'd be ready sometime. He said, you know, uh, you're not doing well. I said, well, I thought I was doing pretty good. He said, no, you're doing well enough to get by. He said, well, that's not going to be good enough. He said, I'm going to fail your little so-and-so. I said, what? I said, but I'm doing, he said, that is not good enough. I'm going to fail you if you don't do better. I'm not going to give you a D. He said, I'm going to give you an F because you can do better than C. And that turned me around. It literally turned me around. And he and I became very dear friends. He was a brilliant lawyer. He represented Adam Clayton Powell. He represented any numbers of people. Marion Barry in D.C. He represented him for years, but Fairbreed was one of those giants uh, that made so many of us who, who we are today. And we're talking with Doug Wilder, and I'm interested to know, who in your family was most influential to you? My mother, without hesitation. <clears throat> she never, never ever thought that I could not be anything. Not just me, but all of us. <clears throat> she was born in uh, Charles City. But left there and went to live in New Jersey and went to high school there. And she was the only person of color in her high school. So she was, I mean, a very smart person. She did crossword puzzles like nobody. Oh, my goodness. She could work the New York Times Sunday talk crossword puzzle <laughs> and be upset if she didn't get it completed. And then we would challenge each other with words. Not only that, even with the, the instance of segregation... <clears throat> She never told me that certain things could not happen. We would get on the bus, and uh, the streetcar would be empty because the line would be at the end of the line was a block from my house, and I'd get on, and I'd sit in the front seat. She said, let's move back a little bit into the, into the middle, and I'd be about four or five years old. I said, you know, you know, I want to sit here. Just move back here a little bit. So that went on for a couple of years, and I could obviously start reading, seeing the signs saying colored. And I'd say, we're sitting in the middle. Why can't we sit up here? And then why? And she said, that'll change. Just just do what I ask you to do. And even when we would go to stores to put on clothes, when uh, you couldn't try on the clothes, uh, she would say, this, this, this will change. Even drinking from the fountains, 
she said, this, this will change. She always was positive, and she never allowed any of us to be down on ourselves. But she also, also said, you've got a challenge, and you've got to be doubly good to be considered good. And that, and it never left me. Success in her mind, was that for you to get a 9-to-5 job, or did she feel that you were destined to do great things? No, I don't think it was a matter of destiny for any great thing. She always wanted me to be certain that whatever I did, I was successful in it and not content myself with being mediocre. It's almost like her breed again, saying, look, don't just do enough to get by. So I was an excellent student in elementary school and I was a good student in high school. I didn't want to go to college because I didn't have the money. And uh, she insisted that, well, we'll go to Virginia Union. We can't go any other place. And I would be paying 10 to $15 on occasions, and she would be squirreling what little money she could away for me to, to do that. Uh, and I just gave up. I, just, I wanted to go into the Navy. I was 16. She said, I'm not signing. My father says, I'm not signing. So I wasted some time at uh, at Virginia Union. But she never gave up on me. Even when I came back from <clears throat> Korea, uh, I was fooling around. She said, you've got to do better than you're doing. And she never, ever stopped doing that. And even when I got into law, my law office was only three blocks away from where I was born. And I'd stop by with, to see her every day, either for breakfast or something. And we would still get into our discussions about world events, what was going on politically, but never with an idea for me to go into politics. She never discussed it, nor did I. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. We'll continue our visit with Governor Doug Wilder in a moment. And next week, a look at what lawmakers, law enforcement, and educators propose to keep our schools and campuses safer. That's on next week's Virginia Conversations. Stay with us. We're back in a minute. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. Today we're pleased to have with us Governor Doug Wilder. There is a quote from the documentary we aired in which Margaret says, he can be extremely contentious even with his friends. That was interesting because there's a list. You know, there there's nothing predictable about your political relationships. You've had your share of public fallings out. Chuck Robb, Don Beyer, Paul Goldman, your former advisor. Uh, more recently... You surprised people. This is this is the thing about Governor Wilder is that there is no predicting the next move. <laughs> uh, when Obama made his run, let's talk about what compelled you not to support Obama. I did support Obama. Okay, then there was a catch. <laughs> when when the crucial moment what, came what after people... four years, uh, then it was time to endorse him, and you did not feel comfortable. After those four, first four years of his office. Well, it's not – I was not called upon to endorse him. I was called upon to voice whether I was going to vote for him, and I did say that, and I spoke of it. I had been somewhat critical of many of the things that uh, – and some of the things that had gone on. But I, I, I would ask anyone 
to bring up any statement, uh, any um, thing that they can point to which said that I did not support Obama. Right. Well, it's it interesting. Is, it, Do you see that perception, how that gets out? Yes. So you, you would say in retrospect that at election time you did support him. I, su- I never did not support him prior to election time. <laughs> I did not agree with everything that he did or that he said. From I a, never, from, never gave any equivocation. And from a personal level, were you disappointed in his first four years? <laughs> to the extent that I knew he was getting his sea legs together, to the extent that I knew that he needed people around him to advise him, uh, I had hoped that there would be those who could be in that position. And I'm not suggesting that he was not the person that uh, was doing it. One of the big concerns I I had about was appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court. There were two vacancies, and I never knew of any serious consideration, serious consideration being given to appointing any person of color to the Supreme Court. Now, you've already referenced uh, how pivotal the Supreme Court's decision in Brown played in my life. And so you can see how that, how much that, that stayed with me straight on through and still is with me. The Supreme Court is the arbiter of the Constitution. Whatever they say is what the Constitution is, it is. We have a call from Jude from Richmond. Go ahead with your question or comment. <clears throat> Hi. Um, my question was um, to ask Doc, um, Governor Wilder if he could just discuss the tone of uh, Richmond politics as a southern <laughs> city. And the reason I ask is that I'm, I'm a native New Orleanian, and um, in some ways Richmond is similar to New Orleans um, as far as uh, just that southern history. You know, it's, it's a, qu- quite an old city with a lot of, of background. And so New Orleans has, has a bit of a colorful history as far as politics is concerned. But, Very colorful. Um, yeah, yeah, you're loving. You know what I mean. Um, I do. But here in Richmond, it's it, it's interesting. There's almost sometimes a bit of a dichotomy with you know a very conservative and very liberal. So um, would you mind kind of discussing that because again, I'm a bit I'm a transplant, and so I'm I'm still learning. Well, thank you for the call. I, I try to, and I have, and May Lily may attest to it. Uh, avoid criticizing or being a part of a a, um, group that is saying this bad, uh, not about anything once I was a part of it. For instance, I don't talk about the state politics as far as the legislature is concerned. I don't talk really about what's going on in the city as it relates to right or wrong relative to any of the office holders. But I think your question is a bit different. I think it points to uh, the comparative uh, gentility or lack of it, the so-called plantation mentality or the magnolia mentality (laughs) sometimes people (laughs) refer to. Uh, I I think that uh, certain things did exist in both cities uh, culturally, uh, to the extent that it was just understood this was New Orleans, this is understood, this is Richmond, uh, people would say, mm-hmm. this is so Richmond, this is mm-hmm. uh, so this. Now, Richmond, unfortunately, well, not unfortunate, but it's factual that we're one of the few 
uh, states in, in America that has independent cities. Now, people call Richmond Henrico, uh, Chesterfield. Um, they call it metropolitan, and it is. But uh, no city is in any county in Virginia. Every city is independent. Every county is independent. So school systems are different. Richmond school system, Henrico school system, Chesterfield school system, and uh, police departments, fire departments. There are, there are some regional compacts. One of the things May Lilly was talking about earlier about what's going on in the legislature relative to transportation. Well, even with what's taking place, if the measure passes, Richmond's regional transportation will not be a part of the fruits coming from that. Why? Because, as some have said, well, we haven't done the right things. We haven't kept abreast, abreast of what's taking place regionally. And so you're seeing a movement. Uh, give you an instance. Richmond is supposedly 54% African-American. And yet, uh, it is 66% represented <laughs> by whites on the city council. Three of the nine council persons are white. Uh, you, 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 people say, what? There's not a single African-American man on the city council. What? But, now, why have those things happened? And that's why it takes greater discussion, greater opportunity for people to see what we used to be, what we used to have, and what we have now. And there was a time, and May Lilly will attest to this, Richmond was the most influential delegation in the entire General Assembly. We chaired about everything, pretty much all of the committees of importance. There's been a recession in that regard in terms of people moving to the suburbs, moving into the counties, and consequently Richmond now has a waning influence as it relates to what it what happens, what monies they can get. And I have a one-word definition for politics, incidentally, money. You name the issue, and I'll show you where money is involved in it. I'd like to go over some of the highlights of your administration when you were governor. Uh, you were known for your crime and gun control initiatives. In 1990, you ordered the state agencies and universities to divest themselves of investments in South Africa. That was unprecedented. And you were pro-choice, and you were also pro-death penalty, having overseen 14 executions. And here's a piece that's pertinent to today's discussions in the GA. You voted to fund Virginia's transportation initiatives. Uh, you worked hard to get this done by lobbying Congress to reallocate highway monies to states with the greatest needs. This, right. too, had not been done. Tell us a little bit about what led to that. Well, you know, we are right next to um, the nation's capital. And we, for so long, had been considered not uh, really involved with what goes on in Washington. That's changed significantly, as you can see. Uh, when I was in the General Assembly, one of the things that I was concerned with was transportation, as I always have been. But the Marshall Street Viaduct used to connect Church Hill uh, to the rest of the world, we'll say. It started at 14th and Marshall and went all the way over to Jefferson Avenue. It's now right there. It's been changed and closed. And that bridge was closed. I used to walk over it to go to my church at 14th and Broad, which was First African Baptist Church. Now it's been sold to VCU, uh, MCV, VCU. 
And uh, Governor Holton was able to, and I was in the legislature, I chaired the Transportation Committee in the Senate, to get the funds to build what is now the Martin Luther King Bridge that that's over towards uh, going over to uh, Mosby Street, uh, the exit near the, the old school there. And so I continued with that, lobbying to get funds. Uh, we put a transportation package together when I was governor. We put a bond package together when I was governor. We didn't raise taxes uh, when I was governor, but we were able to get funding the largest bond proposal that we ever had in Virginia at that time for education, for mental health, for acquisition of outdoor parks, and for transportation. Not only transportation relative to uh, the main highways, but inward, the expansion of Lee Street, uh, being able to do what we were able to do at uh, Temple Avenue and and Petersburg and and the Hopewell uh, access. So the wagon that makes the noise is the wagon that makes gets the grease. <laughs> and that's why we let the people in, in Washington know, give us what's ours, and what is that? Our money that we send to you, and why we want roads. Charles from Richmond, go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, hi, Governor. Um, great Answer. to talk to you this morning. Good. Um, I was a cadet at the Virginia Military Institute when <laughs> the... Um, the discussion and the court case uh, came yes. up for the assimilation of women at VMI. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on the court case and the outcome and where um, VMI is today, for better or for worse. Well, I used to always go to good talk with you, Charles. I used to always like to go to, uh, to VMI, and I remember some of the loudest applause I ever got when I excused the the merits, I think they called them uh, punishments during that time. Cadets, yay! Uh, we were involved with the Mary Baldwin uh, exercise to have a componency of military training there and uh, to work with that experiment to uh, have uh, VMI, as I said, uh, BVMI. Uh, it, it was inevitable that we would have what we have today in terms of the uh, people of both sexes being admitted. And yet I understood that it was coming, and I I thought time should be allowed for that to take place, and I think it has worked. I think uh, we see what's taking place in the military. Um, I think there are opportunities for people to serve, and everybody doesn't have to serve in the same capacity I think what has happened at VMI is uh, good as it relates to the continued attraction. Uh, the, the entrance levels are still high. The graduates are still able to get jobs and not only get jobs, but they're in, in, in demand. And one of the strongest uh, alumni uh, anywhere are the graduates of VMI, and I salute them. I uh, had differences with uh, my then attorney general, um, relative to what was taking place, uh, we were uh, upheld temporarily by the courts, but ultimately the situation is as we have it now, and I think it's good. Thank you so much for your call. Stephen from Richmond, go ahead with your comment. <clears throat> Hello, uh, Governor Wilder. Yes, sir. Uh, I uh, We had some very remote contact uh, years ago. I was teaching at John B. Carey School. And okay. uh, I knew uh, Harold Marsh very well. 
He's a good man, a good friend. Uh, I miss him every day. Uh, however, uh, my uh, daughter graduated from uh, UVA Law School, and her uh, she knew Jesse Jackson Jr. Yes, and uh, Jesse Jackson Sr. was the featured speaker at the graduation. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what you thought about his problems now, and how hopefully he could extricate himself. Little, oh, you mean Jesse Jr.? Yes. Well, unfortunately, the attraction for some politicians is uh, the uh, things that they would like to satisfy themselves with. One of the things I advise people to do in relative to getting involved in politics is uh, don't get into politics to make money. Uh, be certain before you get into politics that you are able to feed yourself, your family, try to educate yourself, your family, try to do the kinds of things that uh, you would be doing because if you don't, if you depend on uh, politics, if you depend on the people who engage themselves or involve themselves with politics, it could easily be a slippery slope. Uh, as you know, the Congress used to be part-time. It used to be you could have a job and go and serve in the Congress, uh, in the Senate, and it, it was a part-time job. Now, they've made it a full-time job. Sometimes people criticize it for being part-time work still, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, it, it's very unfortunate. Uh, I teach a course, as May Lilly pointed out at VCU, and last evening in class we talked about the very issue you bring up. And I said that, and I know young Jesse, he's a smart young man, I've liked him, and uh, he's personable, qualified, went to Notre Dame, um, finished law school, and uh, I'm not, uh, 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 I think he did finish law school, but his attraction has always unfortunately been the limelight of his father's shining on him. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for him to recover from this as it relates to serving in public life anymore. But can he make a contribution to, to others? Yes. By example? Yes. And uh, I wish him well. I, I wish the family well. These are very, very tough times. But the lure of what politics has become in many instances stops many good people otherwise from serving because the time many of them have to give doesn't allow them the time to make some of the things they would like to make for their own enjoyment. Uh, I'm not passing judgment on the case as such because we have not heard all of it. We've seen a plea of guilt. Uh, We've seen him say that he's been ill and uh, recovering. Uh, I wish him and the family my best. Thank you so much for your I would like to add one more thing. Sure. Uh, I admire people like yourself who serve to serve. Thank you. And the public is richer for us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your call. I have a quote I'd like to read from a few years back. This is from you, Governor Wilder. Quote, race relations are not where they were just a couple of years ago in this nation, and we need Healing, affirmative action isn't pulling our economy down. Affirmative action isn't keeping people out of work. Affirmative action isn't running up our deficit. Let's get to the real issues that are tearing this country apart. What has been your stance more recently on affirmative action? 
I think it needs another name, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, affirmative action, you know, people don't even understand who started it. Richard Nixon started affirmative action. It would surprise people to know that. And what does affirmative action mean? It should mean that government, to the extent that it has been involved in not allowing opportunities for people to engage and involve themselves in meaningful um, enjoyment of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to the extent that government has been involved in that, then government should affirmatively uh, set aside those obstacles that have prevented uh, some from engaging and then themselves, government, uh, make certain that these things happen. It it did so with veterans coming back from World War II. It gave them uh, a few points to get the job. It gave them a few points to get the home loan. It gave them some points to get the GI Bill. That's the that real was concept of sure. it. Beg pardon? Yeah, and that was then. And you're yes. listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. This reminder that Virginia Conversations can be heard on virginiapublicradio.org. Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, supporting public discourse through sponsorship of Virginia Public Radio. Resources for parents and teachers online at veanea.org. More information about Virginia Conversations and other Virginia Public Radio programming can be found online at virginiapublicradio.org. This is Virginia Public Radio. Today we have with us the first African-American elected governor in the U.S., Doug Wilder. Governor Wilder, back in 1991, you announced your interest in becoming a candidate for president. Let's talk about what led to that and uh, what ultimately made you decide not to push for the presidency. What made me decide to do it was that I saw so many things going on in Washington that I didn't think were good, I didn't think were right, I saw that it would need someone who was not a Washingtonian uh, to set it straight. And by Washingtonian, I don't mean just people who live in Washington. I mean those who are susceptible to that influence, those who are there, the opinion makers as such. And uh, as I looked out across the country, I knew that it could happen. I also knew that it could happen uh, with a Southerner. And uh, when I looked and I knew that Bill Clinton was going to be looking at it, and I looked at it. And so in September, I decided to do some trial running. And I thought that I could run on the weekends. I thought that I could um, get out there, say, on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays and then come back and do my job here. Uh, I found out how difficult it is. It's it's far more involved in running for governor. Running uh, for president is big, the time for raising money. And I never took the time to try to raise any money because I wanted to test, as I said, the waters. Um, I did get in and stayed in from September till December. And uh, when I finally did get out, uh, James Carville uh, has said since that time that my getting out of the race did more to help Bill Clinton uh, than uh, Mario Cuomo deciding not to run because he knew we were drawing from that same uh, well, uh, that is, Southern governors, 
speaking towards uh, the kinds of issues that Democrats nationally may not have been speaking to. I'll point out to you, though, May Lily, the loudest applause I ever got in the General Assembly when the governor makes a state-of-the-state address uh, to the General Assembly was when I said, I am no longer a candidate for the governor, for president <laughs> of the United States. They say, you way! <laughs> they went crazy. They loved it for two reasons. One, many of them thought, and these were friends, that I needed to give strict and measured attention to the problems of Virginia. I inherited a $2.2 billion shortfall that I needed to spend all of my time, my waking time, my waking moments, on Virginia's problems. Whatever else might come later, might come later. And many of them told me, said, look, we voted for you, we supported you for governor, we're not going to do one single thing for you because you you belong home and we're going to keep you here if we can. And to your credit, World Magazine ranked Virginia as the best managed state in the U.S., uh, consecutively under your auspices. They did that, and I was so impressed. That was the first time Virginia had ever been ranked like that, and particularly in my case, being African-American, being a Democrat, and many people would have assigned to me already a designation of being a spending, spending liberal. And <laughs> unfortunately to some, that didn't happen, and we were very, very pleased to do that. We established, as you know, the, the rainy day fund, the reserve fund, that every governor since my time has used that. It has over a billion dollars in it now. Virginia can't go broke. And I was able to get that put into the Constitution. So that, that means that every year certain amounts of money have to go into that fund. And you can only dip into it one budget cycle. And as soon as you dip into it, when the general revenue funds come back, you've got to replenish it. I didn't have it to dip into, but every governor since my time has used it. And fortunately, uh, we've been able to be maintaining a, a reserve fund. We should point out the rainy day fund is synonymous with the Wilder administration. We have a caller, Scott, from Charlottesville. Good morning. How are you, Scott? Great. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Nice to speak with you, Governor. Thank you, sir. Um, when I've, I um, had just moved to Virginia not long before you were elected, and I was so impressed with Virginia um, electing the first African-American governor, um, and I felt like you've always been one of my favorites. And now I'm really concerned with the fact that Ken Cuccinelli, Cuccinelli may become our governor. That, to me, uh, would be just the opposite. I would, I would sort of be embarrassed um, if that happens. Do you, do you think that that's possible? Is there any way that Boeing could uh, run as an independent? When? What are you? I just want to know your thoughts. Well, thank you, first of all, Scott, for the very kind remarks you made, and I'm glad that you felt that way about Virginia and the, as well as the, uh, the, the election. Uh, don't underestimate the people of Virginia. They, I've always said this, and I really believe this: people are always ahead of politicians. They think when people don't think, when others don't think, they are thinking. Uh, the, is it possible that Cuccinelli can win? Yes. You look at the polls, and they're showing you that it's a literal dead heat. Quinnipiac poll came out a couple of days ago and showed that it's a dead heat in Virginia. And even if bowling ran, uh, it would still perhaps tilt a tad uh, towards uh, Cuccinelli. Who, who, who would know? 
the difficulty that those who would have by dismissing Cuccinelli, they would have to say, well, you you got to have substance. you got to have somebody. And Terry McAuliffe right now appears to be the front runner. He appears to be uh, the only person who's going to be running for governor uh, in, in 2014. And yet 60% or 65% of the people in that poll say they never heard of him. They don't know that much about him. This is a guy who's run for the governorship before, and he's made it known that he's been running ever since. And so Cuccinelli, whether you like him or not, he's in the news. Forty percent of the people uh, at least uh, say they didn't know that much about him, but that means that 55 percent or more did. So nothing is going to be taken for granted in this instance. Uh, Bowling is going to need money. He's going to have to have a record. Uh, McDonald is supporting uh, the nominee of the party. And if Bowling runs, he'll be running as an independent. Uh, I don't know that it's going to hurt uh, anyone too much other than Bowling if he can't muster the money uh, to win. Good morning, Sarah from Chatham. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. Governor Wilder, I've yes, lived ma'am. on Venable Street for 10 years, and I would see you at my neighbor's funerals. Oh. And I would see you at Ms. Johnson's. And I would wow. see you at the Capitol. And the reason I'm calling today, as a fiscal conservative and as a man that understands the law, do you see the uranium question ending up in a legal um, battleground? Or do you have any insights in that? Well, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. You uh, remind me of roots when you talk about Venable Street. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> about a block away from me, right. Q Street turning into Venable, as you know. Yes, sir. And uh, it, it's, it stirs a great number of great memories. I do recall the arguments that were being advanced uh, for uranium mining back in the uh, 1980s, um, and particularly in the Danville area. And then, uh, as you said, you're from Chatham, and I can understand why you would raise that question. The, uh, as you know, the, the issue has been somewhat muted now. Uh, will it stay that way? I don't know. Because uh, the, what comes up when you hear these things is money, job opportunities, uh, economic development. Uh, the, the question will always be, How do you balance economic development with environmental concerns? How do you balance uh, employment opportunities with uh, health concerns? And so has that been satisfied to the extent that the people of Virginia believe that it can happen? At this point, I don't think it has. Uh, Will it come back up? Oh, yes, you can bet it will. Thanks, Sarah. Dean from Williamsburg, good morning. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? We can. Yes, sir. Oh. Uh, I want to make disappointed. a couple of points. <laughs> One point is uh, I I voted for you every time you ran because you're the best candidate. You're doing the best things. You made a kind. Uh, not because you were black. Thank you. Uh, I'm white, and I wouldn't vote for the white candidate. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, you might have kind to say that. And when uh, when Obama runs, I I vote for Obama because he was far more intelligent and and mm-hmm. could handle things much better than any other candidate. 
So, yeah. uh, so I, uh, I'd just like you to know that not only were you uh, running for governor, but you were by far the best candidate to, to, for us to vote for. Well, Dean, thank you for that. And I think May Lily pointed that out a little bit earlier on in her reference and with some of the people that she had quoted and cited in the introductory uh, I, I never looked upon myself as a black candidate nor an African American candidate or a minority candidate I looked upon myself as a Virginian who had lived here that a part of his life who had done the requisite things necessary to enable me to be able to run I thought that if I had presented myself to the people and the public, like yourself, to give you that opportunity to pass judgment yourself, to make the decision yourself, that you would afford me that fairness. And and it did happen. And to the extent that it happened in Virginia in 1985, first as lieutenant governor, and in 1989 for governorship, I think it did open the eyes of other people and many people to see some of the things that we are having today. I just hope that trend continues and that we allow Virginia to still be in that vanguard of the states. And uh, thank you again for your kind remarks. No, I'd just like to thank you. Thank you for very much. all of the people of Virginia. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you, you very Dean. Much. Okay. Mike from Charlottesville, you are on the air. Very good morning. Um, Governor, I'd like to comment on one thing. I've heard a radio broadcast you did on WZTF when you were governor, and what really impressed me the most was the fact that you put education first. And as a parent, and now a grandparent, that to me was one of the hallmarks of your administration. You didn't, you you made a question was asked about minority education, and you yeah. stopped someone in the middle of a comment and said, in your mind, there were no minority children in Virginia. <laughs> they were just children, regardless of where they lived or what their socioeconomic status was, and they oh, all deserved you. our best. And to well, me, thank that you was very one much. of the <clears throat> most important things I've ever heard any governor of this commonwealth say, and it made me very proud that day to be a Virginia. Because well, thank you very much. Um, like I said, education, having been an adult educator myself um, through the EMS system in Virginia, uh, I understand that, you know, educating our children, they are our future. Yes. And a question to the future. Um, two questions, actually. Who do you see the Democrats putting to stand against Cuccinelli to prevent Virginia from backsliding, and if they could not find another suitable candidate, would you run against him? I can answer that last one very quickly. The answer is no. The next thing I will run from, Mike, is cover. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you a lot for your comments, but you're right on target relative to education. It is the key. That's what my mother told me so many, many, many years ago. That's uh, She said this. She said, dumb people run absolutely nothing. <laughs> if you don't want to be a part of the decision-making process, if you don't want to be a part of what I learned later on in, in school, the polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, the, the people who make things happen and make decisions, you got to be a part of it, and you can't do that unless you get educated. 
You pointed to something that is very disappointing to me now, and that is the dropout rates in our schools, the youngsters who don't value it, the communities who don't value it, the lack of participation of parents and PTAs, the communities who don't allow uh, the uh, – or rather, who do allow <coughs> – People to say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. We will, we'll do this. We had a situation in which a guy was chairman of the school board in Detroit who could not read and write just a few years ago. Now, and you say, what do you got to be? No, I'm not crazy. They were crazy to have that situation. And so, unless we have that one key, which does have the potential to unlock all those relative to equality and everything else, and that E is education. We're going to be second rate. Now, I would think that when people speak about education, they shouldn't just speak about money. They shouldn't just speak about, well, how much money are we going to be giving to the... What are the results? What are going to be the kinds of things that you are looking for relative to that book you spend? When are you going to exact results from the kids who are in your classroom? When are you going to professionalize teaching to the extent of understanding that, wait a minute, let's get the best possible teachers we can, and let's pay them the best possible bucks we can. Let's make it a permanent undertaking because those who have those youngsters entrusted to their care do so and have done so for so many years for love. But unfortunately now, the demands of people to given their time and their efforts without proper reward, is not going to be good. So that's the challenge of anyone who's running for the office, to make certain that they make the appeal to the public for the good, the eternal good of all of the people, not just a few. I know a forebearer that you have cited often is civil rights leader uh, W.B. Du Bois, who championed oh. higher education for African Americans. It yes. saddens me to hear that you do think this because I, I wanted to know – of course, education was a cornerstone for you in your early years. Education, education, education. It is sad for me to hear that you don't feel that's the cultural norm now. Well, I do. I still think it's the. I think it should be the, the reach. Now I haven't changed in that, and I think you would agree with that. But do do you see it out there? That's that's the real question. Do you see people? Uh, aspiring to the look at the STEM science, STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Yeah, I'm look. on the same page as you. I just think it's it's uh, sad it's, that we it it. It's absolutely sad. You can't even have people to recite. We give an applause when somebody says, "Oh, I, I guess what?" You got to compete. The world is competitive. We need to be competitive. Let's prepare our kids to be so. It has been a pleasure talking with you, Governor Doug Wilder. Uh, you can be found at the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, do you think you could, in about 10 to 15 seconds, give us a an elevator speech on the mission? Can I give you an elevator speech? Or, yes. Or, or, or which mission? Uh, uh, on the, the School of Government and Public Affairs. The School of Government and Public Affairs is moving in a direction of concentrating on what it means to be in an urban institution, uh, how it can de- develop opportunities to have relationships with uh, other parts of government in other states, as well as with the, fe- right. the national government. Thank you so much. As, as always, a pleasure. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading, 
online at veanea.org. And by listeners of this Virginia Public Radio member station. Listeners can hear this program again or access other Virginia Public Radio news content at virginiapublicradio.org. This is Virginia Public Radio.